0: I want to invite you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, you can turn in your smartphone or Bible and Galatians is in the New Testament. Um, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul and we're beginning this week a three-week series looking specifically at the vision of Scarlet City Church. Our mantra that we say is we're a people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. And there's three core elements, three values, if you will, that are a cornerstone to that mission and vision, and it's the gospel, community, and mission. So we're going to take three weeks to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, go behind the scenes to talk a little bit about the why behind what we do, the why behind the things that are happening, because we want to be very intentional with who we are. And this, this morning, we begin looking at the gospel and over these next few weeks, we're going to be in this letter, Galatians, which is written by uh, the first great missionary of the church. His name was Paul. And he would write letters that comprise a lot of our New Testament. And one of those letters is what we find here in Galatians. It was a personal letter to a collection of churches in modern-day Turkey in a city called Galatia. And these churches were confronted with a problem. There was some division among them that led To many in the church departing from the gospel, Paul, he says, I'm astonished at the very beginning of this letter. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so Paul writes this letter talking about the centrality of the gospel, what it looks like for it to be a cornerstone. And so I'm going to read our, our passage. We're going to be in Galatians 2, 11 through 21. And as I'm reading, I want you to listen to Paul's heart as he's wanting to get to the centrality of the gospel in our life. We'll begin in verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas, who is Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So we're like, okay, we're getting a little real here. All right. Some opposition, some confrontation. This will be interesting. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. to live like Jews. Now Paul gets to the real heart of his argument here. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Well, one question that kind of comes to my mind as I read this this passage that I want to put before you, a question for us all to consider, is... How does someone learn how to dance? There are different approaches to dancing, and some of you are thinking, okay. No, but for real, how does someone learn how to dance? You know, one way to learn how to dance is to watch somebody dance. You can see them on what we call at home a screen, or television is like the old school way of putting it, or watching someone in person. You watch them dance, and you try to mimic their moves. Uh, recently in the O'Brien household when Megan's been away, uh, the boys and I are uh, seven-year-old and four-year-old. We've been watching some Michael Jackson videos, old school music videos. So if you see Bennett kind of grab crotch area and busting some moves, that's my bad. That's on me. So that's one way to do it. Watch, watch people dance um another way though kind of a a better way to learn how to dance because remember that's what we're talking about a better way to learn how to dance is is someone instructing you someone teaching you how to dance someone showing you the moves it could have been your middle school teacher anyone remember that awkwardness in middle school when you're learning how to dance I blocked it out of my mind so I had a conversation with a gym teacher and was reminded of that it could be uh, you're a mom or a parent, or could you could have your Alex Hitchens, aka Hitch, you know, your bros teaching you how to dance, but an instructor who doesn't just model it for you, but shows you how to dance in step. Because that's what good dancing is. It's being in step, being in step with the beat, being in step with the partner, being in step with a group. Contrary, see, when I learned how to dance, I thought it was just you know, in middle school. I, you just jump in the chaos and start, you know, gyrating and moving around. And you know, I wasn't really much in step with any music. I required everyone else to revolve around me, rather than being in step with the music and others. Good dancing requires being in step. How do you learn how to live? What does it look like to learn how to live and thrive in life? There's one way to do it, and it's go it alone. Rather than wanting to be in step with God, wanting to be in step with others, even a sense of harmony harmony internally, it's just forcing everyone else to be in step with us, to go it alone, to march to our own beat and require everyone else to be in step with us. But another way is to be in step, in step with God, in step with others. And so the question is, what beat can we live to how can we live a life in step that allows us to thrive and flourish and live in unity and harmony in life paul puts it this way in the passage that we read and i encourage you to underline it if you have your hard a hard copy bible in verse 14 he gets to the core of what he's, his issue with peter and these other leaders he says when i saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel peter was being what Paul said, a hypocrite. He espoused certain beliefs about God, but those weren't evident in how he was living and relating with others. Peter made claims, truth claims, but he wasn't in step with that truth. It wasn't playing out in his life. And so this morning, looking at what Paul has to say here, how can we be in step with the gospel? How can the gospel not just be a truth we believe out here, but something that's integrated into our life personally and into our church community here at Scarlet City? Let's look at the truth of the gospel, how we can live in step with it. Uh, First, again, we're considering how to conduct our life in step with the truth of the gospel. First, we need to know what is the gospel? We need gospel understanding understanding the gospel truth. And here's what Paul lays out for us, is that we are justified through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. One core, heart, principle, truth of the gospel is that we are justified through faith. If we're wanting to discern the gospel beat, this is a core truth. Look at verse 15. Paul, he gets to this. He says... We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He repeats a few terms here, but one of them is justified. He says it over and over, in order to be justified, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. To understand, when Paul says gospel truth, you must understand this concept of being justified. What does Paul mean here? And a definition we'll use this morning is that to be justified is to be declared or brought into peace with God, ourselves, and others. One biblical term is the idea of to be righteous, to be declared, to be made righteous. And so there's a personal component of this, to be personally at peace with God, to be right with God. That's why later Paul, say in Galatians 3, he says, he connects it to Abraham. He said, Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God and God blessed him. God declared him whole and at peace. There's a personal Component to being justified, made right with God, but also something we often miss in the West is there's a communal component that through faith we're not just made right with God, but we're made right with our community, we're made right with the world. There's shalom, there's peace, holistic peace. And so Paul's wanting to, he's getting at one of the core pursuits of every human being how can we be accepted? How can we be made right? How can we be whole? How can we find true, genuine peace? It's something we're all after. In a way, we're all constructing a resume in the hopes that someone, ourselves even, would say, you are right. You are good. You are accepted. What is on our resume? What do we think we can do to be justified? You know, one route of justification is justification by association. To think if we're with the right group, then we'll be okay. You know, Paul is confronting this temptation. It's why you may have noticed it as we read it in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You think, what? Gentile? That seems a little harsh. Paul, the Gentiles are the only sinners? Jews aren't sinners? What, you know, what, what is he saying? This was one concept then, that to be Jewish, to be part of the people of God, meant you were at peace with God. It meant you were declared righteous. It wasn't that you didn't struggle with sin, but it was that in God's eyes you were at peace because you are Jewish, not through faith, but because of your personal heritage because you are associated with the right people. Now we may have moved past some of that concept ethnically and racially today, but the concept of being justified by being associated with the right people still plays on. I mean, we felt this in middle school. <laughs> when you walk into the cafeteria and you know which tables are the ones where people think, "Wow, if I could sit at that table, be part of that group, then I am accepted." socially. And it doesn't end with middle school. Social media. If we have enough friends, if we get enough likes, if someone really influential who's respected by others retweets my tweet. Man. And and then likewise if there's someone who says something and yet they don't have a lot of followers. They don't seem to have much influence. There's not a they're not associated with the right people in our minds. It can jeopardize the argument. We think if we're associated, connected, a part of the right group, then we would be declared worthy and righteous and justice and um, justified and accepted. Another route, though, for justification is justification by works. Works-based justification. Uh, Paul, again, he, he points this out in verse 16. He says, yet you know that a person is not justified by works of the law. There was a temptation at their time for people to, they all believed, they all claimed faith in Jesus, but then they wanted to add to it. The, how he put it, the circumcision party. These were people that wanted to add the mosaic law and ceremonial laws of the Hebrew scriptures and said, yeah, it was faith in Jesus plus these good works would equal justification and salvation Paul, he says, no, it is not works of the law. It is purely faith. In verse 12, he says, before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. He was fearing the circumcision party. There were people that were shaping Peter's behavior. He was afraid. He was afraid that they would think. He wasn't living in step with God, and so he changed his behavior. He wasn't living by faith. He was adding works to his faith. So what are some of the works we're tempted to do to justify ourselves? Maybe it's religious work, similar to Peter. If we obey the right commandments, if if we give to our church, if we serve, if we invest in our community, then God. We'll be really impressed. We'll have a nice resume of good Christian deeds. Maybe it's religious work. Maybe it's career work. We spend our life investing in a career, crafting a resume that, we'll, that we hope will be impressive to people that they would think, wow, wow, man, good job. Worthy, worthy, accepted. Maybe for some of us in our culture today, It's looking good. We want to go to the gym, eat well, post selfies of ourselves so that the world will look and be really impressed, really impressed with how we look. Maybe it's academic. If we get get straight A's, if we make the right academic club, be very impressive, a resume of academics or athletics What is the work that you're tempted to use for your justification? We wear ourselves out. We can never do enough. We can't build a strong enough resume for ourselves, for God, for the world to accept us. Paul, he points us back to the gospel. The gospel says that my resume, my resume, my ability to be accepted by God is not built On who I'm associated with, but who's associated with me. My resume is not built on what I can do, my work, but on the work that's been done for me. At the core of the gospel is faith in Jesus. In his work, it's repeated throughout. He says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, so we also have believe. That's the the same term for faith. In order to be justified by faith. In Christ, Paul, again and again and again, he says, listen, do not depart from this core component of the gospel. It is faith in Jesus. He puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, that is made whole, made righteous, brought to peace by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect just person to ever live, and he died on the cross and rose again from the grave so that everyone who looks to him, his work, and record, they are justified, made right, brought into peace with God. This is the gospel beat. This is the gospel truth that we must understand. We must understand. Our resume is not our actions, our associations. It is holy Jesus. Now, it's one thing, as we talked about a little bit ago, to know that, hear that. But if we're going to be dancing this, if we're going to live in step with this truth, we must internalize it. We must internalize the gospel truth. And here we're reminded that we are animated by Jesus' sacrificial love and work for us. We must internalize the truth, internalize the beat of the gospel. Paul puts it this way in verse 20. He says, look at how he personalizes this truth. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at what he says about himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no, no longer I who live. Is, is Paul saying that, that he has physically died? No. He's saying that his whole life now has been deconstructed. The work he was devoted to, his concept of flourishing and wholeness and peace and justification, the whole what he built his whole life on before the gospel has been deconstructed. It has been torn apart. And the gospel has constructed a whole new way of living for Paul. His former way of living is now, in light of the gospel, gone. A whole new motivation, a whole new beat to be in step with. Paul, a whole new way of dancing in his life. You know, musicians, in order to be on tempo and to be in rhythm, they need to internalize the beat. And in order to do this, they can use a metronome. Look at that term, right? I am not a musician, but I have done my homework. I talked to an expert, his name is Mike Judea. And a metronome, who knows what a metronome device is? Yeah, all right, some of you. Even if you don't. If I were out there, I'd just raise my hand, you know, like, (laughs) because I want to be accepted. Um, And it it has a clicking sound. And you you use a metronome to practice and to learn a beat, but eventually a good musician needs to internalize the beat. But they don't just have to have the device themselves. In order to be in harmony with the music, in harmony with the beat, it must be internalized. Same with God's gospel truth. The truth and the beat of the gospel must move from just something we hear to something we really believe. And it's amazing what happens when, like Paul, we are old, the old way of living, the old beat, the old dance moves have died and now we're alive, awakened, animated in the gospel. It's interesting to see what the difference You see, an internalized life built on the beat of self leads to certain implications for life. If the beat of the world is shaping how we live, now what is our motivation in life? Our motivation might be self-gratification. People, possessions are means of making me happy is often the beat of the world, the beat of the flesh. And so God is good when he's doing what I want. People are good when they're doing what I want. Money is good when I have it and can spend it how I want. Life can be about self-gratification. And what happens in this way of living, the way of the flesh, my own internal beat is that I can be dominated by fear. Fear of losing what I want Fear of losing status, losing acceptance, losing the work that shapes my sense of well-being. And this leads to results in bondage, being imprisoned to self. But Paul, he lays out a whole new motivation, a whole new way of living. You see, the life lived in Christ, in his resurrection, internalizing that beat now, Our motivation is not just self-gratifying love. It is self-sacrificial. It is Christ's love on the cross. We look at him. He is our model. His death and resurrection become the core motivation of our heart. And now this can produce a genuine joy. Work, relationships no longer become a means for my worth and value. They become a means of serving, and loving, and caring for others. And it results in freedom. Freedom. As Paul's going to talk next week, this is where we're going in Galatians 5. Paul talks about the freedom that the gospel brings. Living to self lives, leads to fear and bondage. The beat of the gospel leads to grace, acceptance, and freedom. Two totally different beats. And so as we bring it now, again, asking the question how to conduct in step, how to have conduct in step with the truth of the gospel. We we hear the gospel, we internalize the gospel, and now we live the gospel. In fact, how we, the way to internalize this truth is to live it, is to get on the dance floor, so to speak. You can't just watch the instructor You must get down the dance floor and dance. And so as we bring this to a close, living the truth, we need to experience Jesus' truth in gospel-shaped community. We need to experience this. Experience it personally and extend it. The message of the gospel must be embodied. Earlier, Danny and I were talking about communication and, and branding and if there's ever an organization you're a fan of or there's a brand and yet you get exposed to the organization and it's not behaving or conducting itself in the way that they present, whether it's online or social media, there's a, it's called hypocrisy. And often this is people's experience in the church. They might see a catchy slogan on a website. I hear people talk about love. Here... Homage to God's grace, and yet getting to know people in the community can often feel the opposite of the very things they preach. A brand that's not connected to reality is hypocrisy, and that's why Peter needs to be confronted by Paul. Paul knows that if we're going to experience the gospel, we need gospel-integrated instructors. We need gospel-shaped leaders. Paul's, he confronts Peter. He he doesn't confront Peter. He says, I confronted him to his face. Paul, he's straight, you know. He's just right up front. I said it to his face. And what does he say? What's he critiquing about Peter? It's not Peter's preaching. He's not saying, Peter, come on, man. You, You need to be a more dynamic leader, Peter. Peter, come on. You know, gosh, this is just too important Peter, your style's all wrong. No, he's, he says it's your hypocrisy. He's saying what the message isn't lining up with your life. And so we need pastors and leaders, and i talking about myself, leaders in the church. We need pastors. When we think about qualified leaders, it is a life that's in step with the gospel and grace of God. That is the core qualification for leadership. Not being perfect. There's no perfect leaders. I mean, if anything, this can help us. I mean, Peter, who's written some of what we have in the New Testament, who knew Jesus personally. Jesus said, on him, I will build my church. Is making mistakes. Needs to be confronted. No leaders outside of needing confrontation. We don't need perfect leaders. We need leaders who confess. We need leaders who model confession. We don't need leaders who are just overly impressive with their gifts. We need leaders who point to the impressive work of Jesus. That, that that's what they point to. Not trying to show off their skills. They're trying to show off the work of Jesus Christ. We need leaders who don't get served by everyone else. But leaders who are humble. Humble willing to serve. This is what leaders we need in the church. These are the leaders we need in our home. These are the leaders we need in our home. Parents who model confession. Parents who serve. Their children serve their spouses, servants, humble. These are the kinds of friendships we need. People who model the gospel Not just in what they say, but how they live. And this is our last thing. And this is a little preview for where we're going next week. We need, in order to integrate the gospel, in order to live the gospel, what do we need? We need leaders who model it, integrated instructors, and we need spiritual friends. Not just people who are kind of pushing us, modeling it on the dance floor, Instructors in a particular season, but we need people that we're dancing with. We need a community, a gospel shaped community, a place where we don't need to be perfect. We're not surprised when we sin. Paul, the whole argument, the whole thing, what is he saying? Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, not faith in yourself. And that means we can create a community of imperfect people that are resting in, have their faith in a perfect God, a place where we don't need to be impressive. You know, when the gospel shapes your life, you're no longer motivated by just associating with other impressive people you know, if that's where you're basing your justification on is just association, what happens is you exploit people. You, if someone is above you on the social hierarchy, you want to hang out with them and you want people to know, hey, you know, last week I was Urban Meyer. You know, we were, yeah, we were hanging out and I talked to him. Oh, Jay, wow, you must be important. You Spent time with Urban Meyer. See, we just naturally relate that way. When the, gospel be, when the gospel becomes your justification now, we don't need to relate that way. We can hang out with anybody. It doesn't matter if you know their name. Every single person is creating the image of God and worthy of our love and respect and time. We don't need to exploit relationships. We don't need to create a community where the impressive people are elevated. It's about humility. And grace, and we can create a community where we serve genuine, joyful, not fear based service. When the gospel takes root in a community, it gives us a new beat, it calls us to a new way of dancing, not motivated by self, but through the gospel, dancing in harmony with God, others. And the world. Is the gospel a cornerstone of your life? Would you be open to it becoming a beat that defines how you live? Would you welcome the chance of it bringing freedom? Freedom from the the need to impress everyone, freedom from the need to earn your standing in the world. Would you allow Jesus? and his acceptance of you and his work on your behalf. As Paul says, how he wraps it up, he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Look at this in verse 20. How does he say it? You know, Paul, when he says this, he does, he's not just like, who, you know, Jesus. He, he loved me and he gave himself for you know, he, he loved me and he gave himself for me. What a nice guy. No, Paul. He's saying, this right here is what I stand on. Jesus, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. I do not nullify that grace. I don't want to do away with that grace. That grace, that message is the centerpiece of my life. Would you be open, like Paul, to make that the centerpiece of your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do not call us into a cliche-filled walk with you. That our identity and justification and acceptance is not built on just nice spiritual platitudes. Thank you for a leader like Paul who confronts Peter and can confront us with the need to make your love and your grace the centerpiece of our life. And God, may we as a community of faith, may we always come back to this gospel. May we take Paul's warning very seriously that we don't depart from the gospel. May it be integrated in our lives personally, in our life as a community. And God, mindful this morning that sometimes this message is just too good to, seems too good to be true. Some of us have been hurt by the church. We've we've heard sermons preached about grace and found ourselves in church circles that were all about works, all about association. So God, I pray for healing for anyone here this morning that that's been part of their story. And God, grant us the courage to take this seriously to create a community founded in the gospel. And we need your spirit because my flesh, like Paul's, just bends toward work. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.